The following audio is from Two Pillars Church, a gospel-centered, missionally-focused church located in Lincoln, Nebraska. More information about Two Pillars Church can be found at www.twopillarschurch.com. Okay, I want to introduce you this morning to two fictional characters. These people are not real, um, though you may closely associate with one or the other. And all of us um, can relate at least to somewhere in between the two. But two fictional characters, we'll call them Billy and Susie, all right? Now, Billy, he, Billy thinks he's a Christian, but he's not. Okay, and Susie is a Christian, but she thinks she might not be. She's, she's, not, she's not sure. Now, Billy, from the outside looking in, all right, he, Billy looks the part. He looks the part, all right? He lives a publicly moral life. But on the inside, what he's ultimately trusting in is himself. Now, he attends church, you know, once a month, sometimes twice. He has for years. Uh, he reads the Bible sometimes. He, he actually knows quite a bit uh, uh, about it. He's got, some, he's got some knowledge down. Everybody likes Billy. He's actively involved in the community. He, he volunteers a, a, a lot. He's really generous, especially with his time. He's creative and interesting. He's a nice guy. You know, salt of the earth kind of fella. When he has a problem in his life, he actually, he turns to God. He looks for help there. He, he might even start going to church more uh, when something bad happens. A, a sort of spiritual self-improvement project, you see. And if you asked him if he was a Christian, he'd say, well, of course I am. Look at my life. Look at my life. Of course I'm a Christian. I don't really lie, cheat, or steal. I attend church when I can. I really strive to, to be kind and to, to love other people. I mean, what, what more could God want from me? Isn't this really what it's all about? But you know it and I know it. Jesus says in his word, there will be people on the last day who cry, Lord, Lord. And he will say to them, depart from me, I, I never knew you. And fictitious Billy, you know, we, we can't discern the heart, but I'm telling you this morning, fictitious Billy, fictitious Billy is in that camp. He thinks he's a Christian, but he's not. Susie, on the other hand, she looks the part two. She attends church almost every week. And, you know, she hardly ever misses. She's in a small group. She reads her Bible. She even prays quite a bit. She knows that she is not saved by any of her works, all right? She, she, any of her morality. She knows that none of that's doing her any good really before God, that, that serving others is not what justifies her before the Lord. No, she knows, Susie knows, that she is a sinner saved by grace. She understands the gospel. She understands how justification works. She knows that she's sinful. She knows that there is nothing that she can do to get herself right with God. She knows that she has trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of her sins. She was even baptized, made it public. She knows that Jesus is Lord, and she is striving to bring her life into accordance with his word, and yet she has some doubts. And these doubts leave her <laughs> unsure. Now, you know, she's got some good days and has some bad days, but even on the good days, somewhere under the surface, she's always wondering, am I really saved? <laughs> now, both Billy and Susie, what they both need is a clear understanding of faith. Whether they realize it or not, they need faith clarified. They, they need to come to grips with both the nature of faith, true faith, real faith. We're talking Jesus-belonging faith, Right? And, in the case of Susie, she also needs to come to terms with how to grow in her faith. The nature of faith and how to grow strong in faith, that's what they need. And it's what, it's what we need. 
And it's what this passage here in the second half of Romans 4 is, is really all about. See, what has Paul been so concerned with in the letter of Romans so far? He's been concerned, hasn't he, with making sure that we know that the way that we get right with God does not come through our works, but rather it's by faith. And here in Romans 4, verse 13, he's still making that same point. For the promise to Abraham, he says, and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. Notice that word promise. It's in there twice. At the beginning and the end. Right? There, there was a promise that was made to Abraham. And at the very end, he says, if it's the adherents of the law, right, law here is contrasted with promise. If it's the keepers of the law, he says, that are the heirs, the, the beneficiaries of the promise, then the promise would be void. Why is that? Well, it's because something can be given by either law or promise, can't it? Law language says, you shall do this. It demands your obedience. It's a command, see? But promise language says, I will do this. I will. And rather than demanding your obedience, it demands instead your faith. Now, there's a lot of commands in the Bible, and we're to obey them. But what what God said to Abraham all the way back in Genesis, we looked at it last week, but what he said was not, obey this law and I will bless you. No, he said to Abraham instead, I will bless you. Believe my promise. Do you see the difference? Abraham wasn't counted righteous because of his law-keeping. He couldn't have been if he wanted to. Like the law didn't come into effect for another 500 or so years. No, God made a promise, and we were told last week, Abraham believed God. He believed the promise, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Verse 15 says, For the law brings wrath, but there is no law, where there is no transgression. Now, Paul here is not saying that if someone doesn't know God's law, doesn't know something about sin, that he's not sinning if he does it, or can't be guilty if he does it. You know, if we just, if if all we have is verse 15 and nothing else from the book of Romans, we might come to that conclusion. We just rip that sentence out of there and make it say whatever we want it to say. But we can't do that because we have the rest of the Bible, don't we? No, that's not what he's saying. That's not Paul's point at all. In fact, if we've been reading Romans, we know exactly he's been saying the opposite. He's been working really hard, hasn't he, to tell us all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that everyone, all are unrighteous and therefore deserving of the wrath of God. No, Paul says here, when he says the law brings wrath, and he he says that to underline the point that law obedience is not the pathway to the inheritance of the promise. Faith is. Listen to how Eugene Peterson paraphrases this for us in his in the, the, the translation of the Bible, the paraphrase of the Bible that he created called The Message. He says, a contract drawn up by a hard-nosed lawyer and with plenty of fine print only makes sure that you'll never be able to collect. But if there is no contract in the first place, hmm? simply a promise and God's promise at that, you can't break it. Do you see what's going on here? God didn't make a contract with Abraham. And Abraham perfectly kept it, and therefore he was counted righteous before God. No, God made a promise to Abraham. Abraham believed God's promise. And it was counted to him 
as righteousness. That's the point. Abraham was not justified by his obedience. He was not justified by his works. None of us can be either. No, he was justified by faith. That's the whole point here in chapter 4. And if justification, right, if being counted righteous before God is by faith, then clarifying the nature of faith and how we grow strong in our faith, I hope you see, is absolutely crucial. Let me say that again. If justification is by faith, then clarifying the nature of faith and how we grow strong in faith is absolutely crucial. And this text here in front of us today is one of the best passages in all of Scripture in helping us to grasp the nature of faith, true faith. We're we're talking authentic faith, the real stuff, the real deal. There are five things in this passage that tell us about the nature of faith. Number one, faith is spiritual. It's spiritual. Look at verse 16. It says, that is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace. Two very important words here, faith and grace. That's why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Now, you'll remember from last week that that one of the points that Paul is making in Romans chapter 4 is that this gospel, all right, anyone can get in on it. Anyone. That's That's what the second half of verse 16 is about. Not only to the adherent of the law, the Jews but also to the one who shares in the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Anyone can get in on this. And one of the reasons that anyone can get in on this is because faith is spiritual. By that, I mean it's not natural. It's not something that you or I can create. It's not something that we can manufacture. It's not something that we can drum up on our own, like I'm going to choose to have some faith today. No, it's spiritual. We don't create faith. This is what fictitious Billy doesn't understand from our two fictitious characters. God creates faith in us. It happens when the Holy Spirit regenerates our hearts. I mean, when, he, when, when God, when he gets a hold of us, he awakens us. He regenerates us. He makes us born again, to use the language of Jesus. And in so doing, he creates faith in us. It's all spiritual. Now, this promise that Paul's talking about here, he says it rests on a very important word, grace. You see that in the text? It rests on grace. What is grace? Well, grace is us getting what we don't deserve. That's grace. It's a gift. Grace is a gift. And what Paul is saying here is that the promise of salvation, of right standing with God, originates and rests on the sheer grace of God alone, the generous gift of God alone. See, grace and faith, they they work together. Grace gives, faith receives. Faith's exclusive function when it comes to salvation is to humbly receive what grace offers. This is why Paul says in Ephesians 2, 
Maybe this will be familiar to you. Paul says in Ephesians 2, it is by grace that we are saved through faith. Grace gives, faith receives. But when we really understand it all, we understand that even faith comes to us by grace. Even faith is a gift. We don't create it. We can't. It's not natural. It's spiritual. God, by his spirit, by his grace, creates faith in us. We are therefore justified by grace through faith, a faith that is spiritual. It's dealing with our spiritual reality, all right? That's the first thing we need to understand about faith. It's, it's spiritual. Secondly now, faith trusts in the sovereignty of God. Look at verse 17 here. It's kind of choppy to pick it up in the middle. It says, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Faith trusts in a God who is sovereign. Do you see it? Over death. Faith trusts in a God whose sovereignty extends over everything. He's even able to call into existence things that didn't before already exist. All right, when you and I hear that, our mind tends to go towards Genesis 1, Genesis 2, you know, the creation, right? But in the context here, it's even more specific. Think about Abraham. <laughs> Brother was getting old, wasn't he? Pushing 90. And, and, but, but, you know, the promise, he's hitting 90, and the promise of lots of children, lots of grandchildren, him becoming a great nation, it, it wasn't happening, man. In fact, if you jump down and read verse 19 in, in our text, it says here, he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Now, Abraham's body here is described as as good as dead. Dead. Sarah's womb is, is barren. Both, both of their bodies, see, were dead in terms of childbearing. There's a double deadness that's here. No swimmers, no eggs, all right? That's what he's saying. But faith trusts in the sovereignty of God over deadness. Faith trusts in the sovereignty of God to call into existence things that don't exist, namely, in this instance, in this context, Isaac, the son. The writer of Hebrews captures this for us this way when he writes, By faith, Sarah herself received power. She received power. Power By faith, she received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who, what's the word? Say it out loud. Promised, therefore, from one man and him as good as, say that one out loud, dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Hmm. Faith trusts in the sovereignty of God. And yet, number three, it's not opposed to reason. Instead, faith, real faith, it doesn't throw reason out the window. Real faith, it trust it is a reasoned trust. That's what real faith is. A reasoned trust. Faith, you see, it goes beyond reason, we can say. 
but it always has a, a firmly rational basis. Here's what I mean. Look at verse 18. Verse 18, we read, in hope, he, that's Abraham, Abraham believed, in hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. In hope, he believed against hope. <laughs> what kind of riddle is, what does that mean, you know? What, what is, well, it, in part, it means as Abraham assessed the situation, he determined, this is pretty darn hopeless. You know what I'm saying? From a human perspective, it's hopeless. We'd agree, wouldn't we? If you saw two 90-year-olds out on the dance floor, cut and rug, let's say at a wedding reception or something like that, you know, and, and you, might, you might see them out on the dance floor, you might say, aw, <laughs> isn't that beautiful? That's so sweet, right? Just look at those lovebirds. But if someone told you those two 90-year-old lovebirds are going to literally make a baby later that night, Right? Yeah, you, you would laugh like Sarah did in Genesis 18 when she overheard God tell Abraham the same thing, right? See, when Abraham looked around at his, at his life, you know, he's looking around his life. This is, this is real life, man. This guy was real. He's looking around his real life, and he's assessing the situation. He's, he's like, my body's kind of old, you know? I'm, I'm getting up there in age. And, and Sarah, you know, in all the years that they had tried and tried and tried for that baby, I mean, think about it. Sarah would have went through menopause half her life ago. There was no earthly hope here. Abraham is as good as Ted. Sarah is nearly a half century past her childbearing years. It was a horribly hopeless situation from an earthly perspective. And Abraham is not ignorant of these facts. He's not, he's not ignorant. He's not hiding from reason. He's, he's reasoning quite well. Thank you very much. He's not some eternal optimist. You know, he's not like, well, I'm 90, but today might be the day. You know? Let's give it another try. He's, that's not what he's, that's not what he, he's not doubling down on the power of positive thinking. We just, come on, Sarah, we just gotta, just gotta think positive here. He's enmeshed in the power of hopeless thinking in earthly terms. And yet his reasoning, in his reasoning, he still trusts. He doesn't throw reason out the window. He looks reason in the eye and he says, God can still do it. God can. He hopes against the hopelessness of earthly hope because he hopes in God. Now, something really important, really, really important has to be said at this point. Abraham was not expressing a reasoned trust in what he wanted God to do. No, he was expressing a reasoned trust in what God had already promised to do. There is a huge difference. Look at verse 18 again. It says, In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told. So shall your offspring be. His faith, do you see it? His, his, his hope against hope is rooted in what he had been told by God himself. Another way to say it, faith is founded upon God's word. Real faith is. True faith is. Faith is not founded upon what you hope God does. 
Faith is not founded upon what you want God to do. It's founded upon his word and what he has promised to do. You see the difference? Let me put it to you this way so we can just make sure we understand this difference. If, if something bad happens in your life, okay, and it, it, it has and it will and it will some more because this is life under the sun. When something bad happens in your life, okay, if someone comes to you and says, let's just say that someone you dearly love falls ill. Someone comes to you and they say, God will make them better. You just need to have faith. Friends, that is absolutely unbiblical, horribly dangerous, really bad theology right there. God has not promised to heal them. Not in this life, not in this world. In fact, what we're promised in the Bible is that from now until Jesus returns, we will all in fact die. Okay? That's what's promised. Being healed from horrible diseases, that's not promised. Now, might God heal? Yes and amen. Yes and amen. He is able to do far more abundantly than anything that we can even ask or think about asking him to do. I mean, that's pretty incredible. Can't even think of it. And so we'll ask him. We'll pray earnestly for healing. We will pray absolutely earnestly, trusting that one day he will bring healing, but it not, might not be before we die. It might be not until he returns and restores all things to himself. But we can go to him, we can pray, we can plead, but we ought never dupe ourselves into thinking, if we just have enough faith, God will do what I want him to. He'll divvy out the divine favors. Or let's do a couple more. If you're single... And someone says to you, God's going to provide a spouse for you. You just need to have faith. Or let's say that you're you know, kind of scrapping by and you're trying to make it rich, investing in different opportunities, hoping to strike it rich, and you say, one day, you know, I just have to have enough faith. It's going to come through. My friends, God does not promise to make you married or wealthy. It's not in here. I mean, I've read it a few times. It's not, it's not in here. Now, you can hope for those things, and you can pray for a spouse and for God to provide abundantly, perhaps so you can be a blessing to others, okay? Not just so you can buy a sweet car or something like that, but God may answer those prayers, but not because he's promised to, which means he may not answer those prayers. And if you're striving on your own to get those things, convincing yourself that you just need to have more faith, well, when that loved one dies, or that girl breaks up with you again, or the investments, they really aren't paying off, what of your faith then? You'll either chuck it all, saying some good that did me, to heck with all this Jesus stuff anyway, or, or you'll be crushed thinking it's all your fault. If I only had more faith. See? Friends, none of that is real faith. It's, that's imposter faith. That is fake faith. It's not the real stuff. No, real faith is founded upon God's word. It's founded on this. Abraham, in hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of nations, many nations, as he was told. So shall your offspring be. He heard God's word. He heard the promise. 
And he believed. He heard God's promise and believed what Martin Lloyd-Jones called the bare word of God. Abraham wasn't looking around for proofs. He's looked around with reason. He agrees that from an earthly perspective, the situation is utterly hopeless. But God had promised. But God had spoken. And he takes God at his word. His faith is founded upon God's word, the bare word of God. He needs nothing else. The word needs no fancy clothes. Faith trusts in the naked word of God. Which leads us to our fifth point from the text under the heading of the nature of faith, authentic faith, the real stuff. Faith is God-centered. It's God-centered. Look at verse 20, basically just so we can get to verse 21 here. But it says, No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. That is why. Why was, faith, why was Abraham's faith counted to him as righteousness? Because he was fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. That's why. He was fully assured. He was fully persuaded. Fully convinced. See, behind every promise of God, look, behind every promise of God in the word of God is God. Which means when you trust in a promise of God, you're not only trusting in what God said, you're trusting in God himself. Faith is God-centered. You know, through my involvement with the Acts 29 Church Planting Network, I get to do uh, church planter assessments from time to time, future church planters going through the, the process. And one of the basic premises for our entire assessment process with Acts 29 has always been that past performance is the best predictor of future performance. All right? It's not the only predictor. You and I could certainly sit in here and come up with exception cases, but by and large, rule of thumb, by and large, past performance is the best predictor of future performance. Now apply that to God. Think about his past performance. Do you realize there's a lot of promises in the scripture? you know how many times God's broken a promise? Never. Never. His past performance, guys, is perfect. It's perfect. He is perfect. He, he doesn't make promises like you or I make promises. You know, like I promised my kid I'm going to pick him up at 3 and I don't show up till 10 after. God doesn't make promises like we make promises. When he makes a promise, he, is, he has the perfect power to fulfill that promise. He sees all combinations. He knows exactly what it's going to take. He has perfect power to pull it off, and he does every single time. That's God. That's our God. This is why we say that faith is God-centered. Faith focuses on God. It focuses on, on his attributes, his power, his faithfulness. In fact, one good way to define faith is to say that faith is the holding on to the faithfulness of God. Faith is the holding on to the faithfulness of God. Now that definition is actually really, really important because what, we te- what you and I tend to do in practice... And our practical, lived-out definition of faith, you know what it tends to be instead? is the holding on to our own faithfulness. That's how we define faith, isn't it? That's the problem. To go back to our original two fictitious characters, that's the problem with Susie. 
Remember Susie? The, the, the one who really is a Christian, but thinks she might not be. She's never sure. See, we tend to make faith me-centered rather than God-centered. We tend to look at our faith to see how we're doing with faith. But to do so is to lose, tra- lose track of true faith. Real, real faith doesn't look at itself. It's not self-centered. No, real faith is God-centered. Real faith is focused on God. It's thinking on God, fixated on God. And go back to the text. Abraham is fully convinced. Why? His, his faith doesn't stem from his unusual abilities. No, the assurance that he experienced resided in contemplating the power of God. He was fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. This is the nature of faith, friends. Real faith, true faith. It's spiritual. It trusts in the sovereignty of God. It's a reasoned trust founded upon God's word, and it is radically God-centered. That was the nature of Abraham's faith. And it's to be the nature of our faith, if it's real faith. Look, Look at verse 23 here. Paul does an incredible job of applying this to us. He says, but the words, it was counted to him, talking about Abraham, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for the trespasses, our trespasses, and raised for our justification. Here's what Paul's saying. He's saying that that the way that Abraham was counted righteous before God is the same way any of us will ever be counted righteous before God too. Abraham was justified by faith. And if anyone in this room is to be justified, it will also likewise be by faith. Real faith. Authentic faith. Just like Abraham, but different because, what does it say? It'll be counted, all right, that's our word imputed, if you remember from last week. It'll be imputed to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord. This Jesus who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Here's the train of thought. Real faith for you and me is spiritual. Just like Abraham, we don't create it in ourselves. It comes to us as a gift. Remember, grace. Real faith for us, just like with Abraham, it trusts in the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God over deadness. And the sovereignty of God to call into existence things that don't exist. I mean, think about Ephesians 2. Do you remember Ephesians 2, how Paul talks about us there? He says, and you were, talking to you, he says, and you were, what's the word? Dead. You were dead. Dead, like old man Abraham. You, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were thereby nature children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. But God, but God, being rich in mercy, 
because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were, what's the word again? Dead. In our trespasses, he made us alive with Christ. Together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, he says. And he goes on to say, by grace you have been saved through faith. You see it here? You see it? You and I, we were dead. Not literally dead, we still had a pulse, but as good as dead, spiritually dead, in our trespasses and sins, but real faith trusts in God's sovereignty over that deadness. Real faith trusts in God's sovereignty to call into existence things that didn't prior exist, specifically faith in us. We were made alive, Ephesians 2 says. Born again. Additionally, real faith for us, just like with Abraham, is a reasoned trust. You remember the hopelessness of Abraham's situation? He's closing in on a century. No child yet. All earthly reasons for hope are gone. He wasn't ignorant of the facts. He wasn't hiding from reason. The parallel here for us is the hopelessness of our situation. Remember Romans 2 through 3? We've been spending 11 weeks in it. You remember Romans 2 through 3? It's pretty bleak. It was pretty dark. And when you and I examine our lives with brutal self-honesty, and we see the sinfulness, when you think of the thoughts that only you and God know about, you know which ones I'm talking about. When you realize, when you realize increasingly that you're far more sinful than you ever dared imagine. You realize, don't you, that when it comes to being counted right before God in a human sense, you are as hopeless as a childless old Abraham trying to make a baby with Sarah. Hopeless. That's been Paul's point. And yet, faith, real faith, and hope, it believes against hope, that Jesus Christ died for my sins. Yes, even mine. Real faith in you believes, hoping against hope. Hoping against all earthly thinking and all the facts that Paul's just laid out for us in Romans 2 and 3. That it believes instead that Jesus was in fact delivered up for your trespasses and raised for your justification. And this isn't just wishful thinking. This is not the power of positive thinking. It's very different from that because it's rooted none other than in the word of God. Real faith for you is founded upon God's word. The same word that says to us in Romans 10 verse 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's a promise, my friends. That's a promise. It's a promise that we hang our life on, that we hang our eternity on. And God never breaks a promise. Reminding us, ultimately, that our faith is centered on Him. Our faith is centered on God, who in love sent His Son to live perfectly for us, to die perfectly for us, to rise perfectly for us, so that through Him... 
Through believing in him, by faith, the same kind of faith that Abraham had, we too are counted as righteous. We too are justified by faith. That's the nature of faith. That's the nature of faith in Abraham. That's the nature of faith in us. That's theology, we could say. But then you and I both know there's practice then too. Practice. You notice this line in in verse 20. This really stood out to me this week. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. That's a strange way to say things. It says he didn't waver, and yet he grew strong. He grew from a weaker point in his faith to a stronger point in his faith, and yet that growing is not described as wavering. His weaker faith is not described as wavering. Now, this is interesting when we think about Abraham, because from our perspective, when we read the Bible, Abraham absolutely wavered. I mean, have you read Genesis? There were multiple regressions that we read about here. If you go back and read through it, he questioned God about the promise in Genesis 15, right? Sarah laughed about it. He lied about who Sarah was, calling, him his sister, calling her his sister. And then he tried to make matters, take matters into his own hands in Genesis 16 by having sex with Sarah's maid, trying to make a baby on their own. Remember all that? Eh, that kind of seems like wavering to me, you know? In other words, Abraham was not perfect. He was not. His trust fluctuated. But also, in a sense, he never ultimately wavered. His faith was never extinguished. His doubts were never confused with unbelief. Through it all, he kept clinging to the faithfulness of God. And even in moments where his clinging grip was slipping away, each time he returned, after each little spell of doubt, after each of his seasons of questioning and Going off and trying to do it on his own, he returned to God, basically saying, all this is reminding me that God is, my, God is good, he's my hope, and I need to trust in him. See, Paul here in verse 20, he's not trying to chronicle out in full detail all the ups and downs of Abraham's life. He's saying Abraham didn't waver in the sense that he persevered and persisted in faith despite the ups and downs. He kept holding on to the faithfulness of God. And this is really important for us to understand. Particularly because it's one thing to have a good theology of faith, real faith, true faith. It's easy for us, isn't it, to get the nature of faith down in our notebooks, to get it down intellectually. But it's another thing to experience confidence in faith. Assurance that we belong to Jesus and always will by faith. Or to put it another way, it's another thing to be strong in our faith. There's theology, see. And then there's practice. There's real life. That's where Susie got hung up. She, she is a Christian, remember? But she, she thinks she might not be. She's never sure. Listen to how Sinclair Ferguson articulates this, uh, this reality and complexity of this for us. He says, well, the theology of faith is simple. It's barely, that might be a stretch. <laughs> it's, you know, but for him, he's brilliant. So he says, while the theology of faith is simple, the experience of assurance is complex for two reasons. The first is that we are complex, not to say complicated. And we all said, amen. You know, like, we're, we're complex. We're complicated, aren't we? And, and, and assurance impacts on what the moderns have tended to call the self-image, the self. In this instance, how do I think about myself in relation to God? 
in Christ. Then he says, full assurance is therefore a complex spiritual and psychological process by which confessing Christ died for sinners and I rest on him becomes, I am sure that nothing in all creation can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus my Lord. In one, he says, one individual, that complexity may be so beautifully simplified that its intricacy goes unnoticed. In others, the complexity of their self-consciousness needs to be pastorally untangled before the clear connection between believing in Christ and realizing the implications of that can become clear. In other words, you can know it in your head. It's a lot harder to know it in your heart. We can get the theology down. We can parse the text. You can take notes on the five characteristics of true faith. And yet we fluctuate, sometimes more than others. Some of you in this room, you have what the Bible calls the gift of faith. I think I have this. And, and you don't really doubt a, a whole lot. Sure, you, you have days where you question, you wonder, you know, if some things are really true. But you rarely experience a regression. That's not to say you don't sin, which really is a regression when you trace it out. Okay? But from the outside looking in, you don't waver a whole lot. Listen, if that's you, know that that is not you. That's a gift from God. And that's to be stewarded well for all the believers around you. Others of us, though, in the room, because of the complexity of our self-consciousness, to use Ferguson's words, because of our own unique makeup and wounds and experiences and weaknesses, resting in the assurance of faith is hard. You're a Christian, but you're never quite sure. If that's you today, let me just tell you, first off, you're, you're pretty normal. You know, I know your parents told you you're special, but in this case, you're pretty normal, all right? Full assurance is a complex spiritual and psychological process. But also, let me tell you this. There's a way to grow strong. There is. Look at your scripture again, verse 20. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but... He grew strong in his faith. How? As he gave glory to God. That's how. How do you grow in your faith? How do you grow strong in your faith? By glorifying God. That's the secret of faith. See, the main reason we have so many troubles with our faith is that instead of keeping our eyes steadfastly fixed upon Jesus, we look around at our circumstances, we look around at ourself, we look around at our weaknesses and our wavering, and when we do these things, guys, it's self-reinforcing. We feel weak and we look at our weaknesses and we grow even more weak. We say, man, I'm hopeless. Look at my hopelessness. Now I feel more hopeless. Yeah, that's how that works. When we're there, we're functionally defining faith as holding on to our own faithfulness rather than holding on to the faithfulness of God. What's the solution? The solution, friends, is to fix your eyes instead upon Jesus. Your faith is not the object of your faith. It's not to be. Jesus is to be the object of your faith. If you're asking the question, can I have assurance of salvation? Can I be sure? You're asking the wrong question, my friend. 
Instead, the only question to ask is, can Jesus save? Can Jesus be trusted? Does Jesus fulfill his promises? Real faith is holding on to the faithfulness of God. This is why the old Robert Murray McShane encouraged Christians in his day, we probably could apply this to ourselves, that for every one look at yourself, you're to take 10 looks at Christ. Try that this week. <laughs> That's really hard to do. We're pretty good looking at ourselves. We get lost in our heads when we look too much at ourselves and not enough at Christ. We grow strong in our faith, not by looking at ourselves, but by looking at Christ, glorifying Christ. Now, what the heck does that mean? <laughs> you know, how do you do that? I'll give you three simple ways to close. Number one, participate regularly in corporate worship. None of these are going to be revolutionary ahas, by the way. All right, you're like getting your pen ready. You're going to be a little bit disappointed. Well, the way that we grow strong in our faith as we glorify God is pretty darn ordinary, friends. Every week we gather together in this room around the family dinner table of corporate worship, right, for the expressed intent of glorifying God. When we come together, what's the very first thing that we do? It's called a call to worship that reminds us what we're here for. And this is one of the reasons that we're so eager for you to not be late. I know the difficulties. I know, you know, it was 10, 15 before, and now it's 10. I, I, I know it's hard to get all the kids' stuff in the minivan. I, I know all that you're tired, you're up late. I know all the challenges, right? But when we arrive late to corporate worship, we have the immense propensity, don't we, to make it all about ourselves? Did I like that song? Did I not like that song? Did I like that reading? Did I not? Did you strum the guitar right? All the, all the things, right? We make it all about ourselves. Part of the reason that we do that is because we've missed the call. Listen, you can still be here and miss the call. You know what I'm saying? The call to worship, though, it reminds us that what we do in this room is not first and foremost about us. It's about God. We're called to worship him. We're called to glorify him. Fix our eyes on him, our affections on him. And when we realize that, when we enter into Sunday mornings with that state of mind and that state of heart, when we participate in corporate worship from the perspective that I'm here to glorify God, we grow stronger in our faith. Adoring him. Coming humbly before him in confession, but immediately being reminded of what Jesus has accomplished for us in assurance. And therefore, the next element of the liturgy, praising him, giving thanksgiving to him, passing the peace, being reminded and reminding each other that none of us, none of this is an individualistic self-improvement project, but we're all in this together because God has brought us together. Sitting under the word, hearing it preached, being refreshed and reminded of the glory and the goodness of Jesus, saying amen in our hearts, and occasionally, my brothers and sisters, out loud. <laughs> there, two of them. Wow. Progress. We're getting stronger, you know? Coming to this table, glorifying Jesus, ascribing to him all worth and value and importance in our life, singing to him, being sent out of here with our eyes fixed on him and not ourselves, participating not passively, participating regularly in corporate worship. It's one way that we grow stronger in our faith by glorifying Jesus. Number two, feasting on the word of God. We do this on Sundays. We can do it together in our gospel communities. We also do this on our own. In the daily renewal of your faith, 
We engage God's word, not just reading, but feasting on it. This is slow, steady work. It takes discipline. We grow better at it over the years. But the discipline is all geared at glorifying God. We read the promises. We later read a promise fulfilled. And we glorify him. We say, wow, look at him. We, we grow strong knowing, trusting that past performance is the best predictor of future performance. Being reminded, God never breaks a promise. We read a prophecy in the Old Testament. And we remember from the last time we read through the scripture, we read about it coming to pass in the new, like at the incarnation, and God sending his son, something Christmas time in the Advent season brings to the forefront of our minds. And we marvel. We marvel. Do you know how alive the first few chapters of the Gospels are going to be for you this year after working through the Minor Prophets last summer? <laughs> Your faith is going to be made stronger. We read the Psalms. We're reminded of how they give voice to the voice of our heart, that God understands us, that it is okay to bring before him the full gambit of our emotions, crying out to him in pain and in loss and in fear and in joy. We turn to him, we fix our eyes upon him, glorifying him, and our faith slowly, over time, is made stronger, stronger. I could keep going, we read the Gospels, right? We steep ourselves in the reality of who Jesus is and what he's like, gentle, lowly. Somebody should write a book about that. Kind, loving, patient, powerful, sovereign. We read Acts, and we see the Holy Spirit at work in the early church. We read it, we go, wow, is there anything our God can't do? No, there's not. And we glorify him, and our faith grows stronger. It grows stronger. And then number three, we live it out. Moment by moment, in the ordinariness of our lives. We live out our faith. We persevere. One step at a time one foot in front of the other, little by little, day by day, moment by moment. We walk by faith. With the little faith we have, we follow after Jesus. And our following after Jesus glorifies Jesus, and our glorifying Jesus strengthens our faith, and we grow a little stronger, and we walk a little steadier. It takes years most of the time, suffering can speed it up. But it takes you, when we're tempted, when we're fearful, when we sin, when we're suffering, when we're down, we return moment by moment to he was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Moment by moment, whatever comes our way, with the little faith that we have, we hold on. We hold on, not to our faith, but to his faithfulness. We cling to what he's done. We cling to his promises. And the way that we cling, the way that we hold on, is counterintuitive. Because we don't double down in our efforts. We don't seek to get a grip. No, instead, we raise the empty hands of faith moment by moment and we trust his word moment by moment his word that tells you you are forgiven 
You are loved. You have been reconciled. You have been justified. Counted as righteous. That there is no condemnation for you now. And there's never going to be. That there's, there's no condemnation for you. There, there's, there's actually nothing left to be charged to your account. And he's with you. He sees you. You matter to him. And he knows that you still have some doubts. But he, he began a good work in you and he's not going to give you his two weeks notice. He sees you. He knows you. He's promised to never, he's promised to never leave you, never forsake you. He's promised that he's coming back for you to make all things new again, all sadness to go away. <laughs> we live it out moment by moment. Do you realize right now your faith is stronger than it was 90 minutes ago? I mean, unless you've just been totally focused on yourself the whole time, maybe checking your email and your phone. I, I don't know, right? But we've been in this room glorifying God together. And the way our faith grows stronger, we're told right here in Romans 4, is by glorifying God. Let's pray. Father, what an incredible joy it is to gather together to glorify you and therefore grow stronger in our faith. Father, we believe. Help our unbelief. Strengthen us in our faith in Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio from Two Pillars Church. Feel free to share this audio with others, but please do not alter or edit the content in any way. For more information about Two Pillars Church, please visit www.twopillarschurch.com.